0: Will you do me a favor? We have some guests with us this morning. They're sitting in this area here. Will you give them a nice warm welcome, please? 14 years, I had the wonderful privilege of serving in Southern Africa. Africans have kind of a neat custom, and a custom goes like this. Is that when a Christian stands in front of other Christians to preach or to teach, that person greets the people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two reasons for that. The first reason is that the speaker recognizes for him or her to be an effective communicator, that person really needs the infilling of God's Holy Spirit. But at the same time, it's never just a one directional thing, but it's also the people out there saying that they want the Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts. And so this morning, I'm gonna greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as my way of saying I truly want to depend upon him. But if you would like for the Holy Spirit to speak to your hearts, you would respond back and you would say amen. And so, Amen. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 7, you find these words, reading from the New International Version. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said... Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came then to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Dear Father, this is my prayer, is that these, your beloved, would not necessarily see Jim Lowe speaking, but my prayer is that they would see you speaking through me. And I pray this in your wonderful name, amen. I need to give you the personal background, the personal background to this message. On September 18 of this year, my brother phoned me up. In the course of our conversation, he shared these words with me. I've decided that I'm going to be an atheist. I don't believe that there really is a God out there. Now I'm going to ask that you hold on to that little bit of information which I just shared with you as we journey through the words of Numbers chapter 21. You see, this passage of scripture describes for us what happened when the Israelites, what happened to them during their wanderings in the wilderness heading towards the promised land. And then at the end of this message, I am going to be asking you to make a response. And so first of all, this is what I find in Numbers 21. That Numbers 21 reveals to us the condition of the Israelites. That though God was leading them, the Israelites grew impatient and they began to speak against God and against his chosen servant, Moses, with a dissatisfaction that they inwardly were feeling that because of the ways that things were going, they began to whine. In tones of irritation, they began asking questions like this. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no bread here. There's no water here. In fact, we detest this miserable food. You see, their lack of faith and ungrateful hearts angered God. You you need to understand something. I recognize that there are going to be some people here that really don't like messages that talk about the anger of God. To be honest, I want you to know that personally, if I had my way, I would just talk about the love of God and the kindnesses of God. In fact, I love messages where I can just come to people and say, hey, you know the God that I serve? He's a God that comes and he just loves people and just wants to hug them all the time. That's the kind of messages I would rather preach. But at the same time, you and I cannot avoid the reality of what the Bible talks about. It does talk about the God that we serve being able to get angry. You see, a problem facing the church is that modern theology tends to want to emphasize God's love to the expense of his holiness. I believe that it has overemphasized the fact that his love is unconditional and for this reason has tended to depersonalize the concept of retribution. But you need to understand something, that both the Old and the New Testaments, they record dual contrasts. James tells us that while God saves, he also destroys. Paul in his epistle to the Romans tells us that God is both kind, but he is also severe. In the same letter, we are told that God is love, but we are also told that he is a consuming fire, that he is avenger. Even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is recorded as getting angry. He destroyed a fig tree. In fact, he threw robbers out of the temple. Jesus Christ also spoke about the anger of God the Father and portrayed him as a king who relentlessly punished and destroyed the impenitent. You see, both divine anger and divine love are clearly taught in both the Old and the New Testaments. John MacArthur wrote, God's attributes are balanced in his divine perfection, and they are perfectly balanced. If God did not have wrath, and if God did not have anger, then he would not be God. God is perfect in love on the one hand, and he is equally perfect in hate on the other hand. Just as totally as he loves, so totally does he hate. And his love is unmixed, and so his hate is also unmixed. Of Christ, it said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. You see, there is a perfect balance in the nature of God. One of the growing tragedies, I believe, of Christianity in our time is a failure to preach about the hatred of God and the judgment of God. Can I share? We're so saccharine. We're so sentimental. We're so kind of, can I put it this way? We have kind of a mushy Christianity. We'll never understand, dear ones, how great God's love is unless we know how great his hate is. I mean, if we understand that God hates sin so profoundly, then we will find it all the more amazing that he can love sinners. So without an understanding of his hate, his love is crippled in our thinking. Love and grace are void of meaning if God does not hate and so despite our aversion to seeing God as a God of hate and a God of wrath, the scriptures clearly do emphasize these points. Which then leads me to the second thing which I noticed in Numbers 21. I noticed the condition. The condition of the hearts became more and more impatient among the Israelites. And because of it, they began to verbalize their complaints more frequently and with greater intensity. You see near a place called Paran the Israelites began complaining against God and his chosen leader Moses. We know the concept of complaining by different terms. We know it as griping or grumbling or whining or can I put it this way we know it as belly aching. We don't belly ache here at this university do we? But regardless of the word that we use to describe it complaining always has the exact same symptoms. The dictionary defines it as an expression of unhappiness, dissatisfaction, discontent. A discontent that originates from within a person's inner being. You see, I believe that there may have been six possible reasons why the Israelites began complaining. Number one. I believe that they may have been complaining because they were short-sighted in that they were viewing their circumstances only from a temporal viewpoint. They didn't consider all the options. They didn't entertain the possibility that God was trying to teach them something about their circumstances. In fact, church leaders contend that there are three ways in which God can use circumstances. Number one, God can use them to get our attention. Number two, God can use circumstances to direct us. And number three, God can use circumstances to teach us. I believe, secondly, that the Israelites might have been complaining because they felt as though they were swindled. The word to swindle, to rip off, to scam, to hoodwick, to deceive. I want you to know, I don't usually watch this show, but I like watching it sometimes. I was indulging in an episode of Judge Judy. How many of you have ever watched that spiritual program? (laughs) While I was watching it, I heard an incredible example of a problem that I believe has infiltrated our homes, has infiltrated our schools and universities, in fact, has infiltrated our very culture. A mother at the end of her rope was suing her 24-year-old son from repaying over $4,000 she had loaned him to buy a car she would forgiven the first two car loans she had made him from her life savings, but now the credit bills were beginning to pour in. And so what was the son's impressive defense? He argued, she owes this to me because the last car that she bought me was a piece of bleep, bleep, bleep. I was thinking about using that word, but since, since Dr. Newman is here, I didn't want to get fired. <laughs> and so what was this young man's problem? It was an attitude of entitlement. The entitlement attitude comes along and states something like this, that life owes me something, or people owe me something, or God owes me something. You know if you're into entitlement because the results leave you constantly feeling angry, resentful, or frustrated. If you believe that someone owes you something and that person doesn't come through, you then have all these negative feelings filling up your heart. You feel as if you've been ripped off. You feel as if you've been cheated out of what you think you rightly deserve. You feel as if you've been duped. You feel as if you've been swindled. Well, you see, the Israelites were feeling that they were being cheated. They felt that they were not getting what they deserved, that God and Moses owed them, and that they deserved better than what they were receiving. They were probably even mumbling to themselves, aren't we the chosen race? And therefore, shouldn't we be treated special? Well, can I put it this way? We know the Israelites weren't the chosen race. We all know the Chinese were the chosen race. (laughs) Number three, I wonder if the Israelites may have complained because they had a shoddy view of God, an insufficient view of the divine. They thought that God needed to be convinced to meet their needs, thinking that he is naturally stingy and reluctant to bless in some ways they were thinking that god is not all powerful believing that he could not truly help them in their time of need but dear ones i want you to know something that the god we serve truly is a great god great enough to meet all of our needs great enough to forgive all of our sins great enough to carry us through the dark valleys of death into eternity to be with him forever you see dear ones i believe That with a psalmist, you and I can declare, you are great, you are the awesome God. Number four, perhaps some of the Israelites were complaining because they had feelings of being superior. For a fact of life is this: some who complain feel that it's their right to judge, to critique others and things because They see themselves as being more important than others, or more competent than others, or wiser than others. And because of that, and because of their great intelligence, they possess a superiority complex. How many of you have ever met people like that? Raise your hand. Doesn't it just want to make you vomit? So they possess the superiority complex. Number five, I wonder, there were some Israelites who may have been complaining because of self-dissatisfaction. Because they were not happy with themselves, with life, with circumstances, because of that they were miserable. And because they were miserable, they could not stand others around them from being joyful, being content, being being happy. And thus they thought that it was their duty to make others as miserable as they were feeling. Wayne Dyer came up with the following list on how a person can be miserable. He wrote, number one, compare everything you do to the lives and accomplishments of other people. Number two, try to please everyone. Number three, live in a sea of negative voices. Number four, never mix things up or try something new. Number five, spend most of your time in the past or in the future, but never in the present. Number six, focus on what you don't have. Number seven, always be looking for and relying on external validation. And number eight, take things too seriously all the time. Don't lighten up for anything or anyone. Or can I share maybe number six, perhaps the Israelites may have been complaining because of stress. They had been traveling long distances. Though the Lord had wanted the Israelites to obey the Sabbath according to the scriptures, these Israelites, they were not doing so they were not following his command, which left them emotionally and physically and spiritually exhausted. And one of the things which I have discovered, dear ones, is this, exhausted people tend to be complaining people. Kind of like what happens here at this university during certain times of the year. Well, number three then, numbers 21 tells me, it brings us then to the third point, the consequences of sinning. You see, due to the sin of the Israelites, God sent poisonous snakes amongst them as punishment. The snakes bit the people. Now I want you to know, I don't like snakes. How many of you here don't like snakes? Raise your hand. How many of you like snakes? Raise your hand. Yeah, there are always some crazy people in the group. Well, I want you to know I don't like snakes. And I want you to know my wife hates them even more than I do. When I was in the army... I I became an instructor at Fort Sam Houston in Texas, teaching entomology. It was customary for me to bring in different kinds of bugs home to our then very small apartment. I would bring home mosquitoes, moths, scorpions, tarantulas. Now, though Roxy did not like bugs occupying her living space with her, she indulged me and allowed them into our home as long as they were in inescapable containers. But the day came when I found a beautiful snake. The snake wasn't all that big. I want you to know, it might have been around maybe three feet in length. Well, when I brought it to our apartment, I assured Roxy that I would put it into one of my fish tanks and assured her that there was no ways that the snake would crawl out and escape. Well, as many of you already know, the snake got out. Now, my wife, Roxy, is normally a very calm, tranquil, soft-spoken, and collected person. Except I want you to know, that night, I saw a whole new side of my wife. Man, I tell you what, she moved faster than I'd ever seen her. She was like Supergirl. She jumped onto the bed. She began jumping up and down. She began screeching as loud as she could. And I tell you what, she began screaming at me, and she came along and made statements like this, that if I did not get that snake out of the house, I would be dead meat. I was going to tell her, all meat is dead. <laughs> but I knew if I did that, I would be for sure dead. <laughs> well, in Africa, one quickly has to learn the word in yoga, the Zulu word for snake. Especially if one is going to be going into the bush country among the Masutu. The Masutus come along and in the, out in the villages, out in the bush, they have a snake that can come along and in one swallow, they can swallow up a baby goat. Well, my wife hates snakes. Well, I decided to do some research on them and discovered severe symptoms of one who has been bitten by a poisonous snake may include rapid swelling of the area that has been punctured, numbness, severe pain at the wound site, facial twitching, slurred speech, convulsions, paralysis, loss of consciousness, and even death. Well, the snake bites recorded in Numbers 21 was causing massive deaths among the Israelites. Now catch what's happening. The sins of the Israelites were causing death among the Israelites. Now I want you to catch something in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, 23, where we are told that the wages of sin is death. And so in desperation, the Israelites, they approached Moses, which leads us then to this. The first thing that Numbers 21 tells us about the Israelites is this. We see them coming to Moses, asking, and coming and making confession. They cried out to him, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They were confessing their disobedience. They were confessing their deficiency. They were confessing their desperation. They then came and pleaded for Moses to pray that the great I am would take away the deadly snakes. Now again, notice something with me. Moses could have very easily turned his back on the pleas of these people. You see, weren't they the ones that had been criticizing him? Weren't they the ones that had been complaining about his leadership? Weren't they the ones that had been bad-mouthing him? And yet this is what I noticed about Moses, that even though all these things had happened to him, all these negative things took place, Moses had a deep concern for them. I'm going to be very honest with you and very transparent i'm not sure i could have been like moses i've been inside situations where people have criticized me and i want you to know that even though i talk about being holy people when people criticize me again i'm being transparent there are times when i'm going to bed and sometimes you cannot control your dreams and there have been times that the person that has criticized me when i'm sleeping at night i can picture myself coming along and placing that person's head upon the ground And I come along and stand on top of a desk and I jump on a person's head and I see a splat all over the place. That's what I would have done. I would have come along and said, hey, forget you, you people that criticized me. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, spent long exhausting years in translating the Bible. During those years, he was dragged away to prison, and while he was in prison, his wife died. And after his release, he was stricken with disease, during which time he breathed out this prayer. Lord, let me finish my work. Spare me long enough to put the saving word into the hands of this people. And why did he say a prayer like that? Because Hudson had a deep concern for his fellow man. So concerned was James Chalmers for those without Jesus Christ as their Savior, that it was said of him, in Christ's service, he endured hardships and hunger and shipwreck, exhausting toil, and did it all joyfully. He risked his life a thousand times. He was finally clubbed to death, beheaded, and eaten by the men whose friends that he was and whom he sought to enlighten. And why did Chalmers do that? because Chalmers had a deep concern for his fellow man. Several steps on their path to death by beheading and crucifixion in August 2015. 11 indigenous Christian workers near Aleppo, Syria had had the option to leave the area where they were and live. In fact, a 12-year-old son of a ministry team leader also could have spared his life by denying Jesus Christ as his Lord. These indigenous missionaries were not required to stay at their ministry base. In fact, their ministry director who had trained them came and actually entreated them to leave so that they could spare their lives. As the Islamic State, ISIS, other rebel groups, and Syrian government forces turned Aleppo into a war zone of carnage and destruction, ISIS took over several outlying villages. The Syrian ministry workers in, the, in those villages, they chose to stay in order to provide aid in the name of Jesus Christ to the survivors and those who were in dire need. They stayed because they believed that they were called by Jesus Christ, to be for those, to be there for those that were caught in the crossfires. Every time that we talked to them, the director said, they replied, "We want to stay here." We need to stay here. We feel the need to share the gospel. Well, those who chose to stay could have scattered and hide and saved their lives. The relatives of these 11 indigenous missionaries, they shared. Then on August 7, the ISIS militants, they came and they arrested and they captured all of these Christian workers. And then on August 28, the militants asked if they had renounced the Islam for Christianity. And when the 11 Christians said that they had, the rebels asked if they wanted to return to Islam and live. To which the 11 Christians said that they could never, ever renounce Jesus Christ as their Lord. According to one of the villagers that was an eyewitness, these Christians, they kept on praying loudly and sharing about Jesus until their last breath. They did this in front of us, villagers. What a testimony it was to us. The two indigenous missionary women, ages 29 and 33, tried to tell the ISIS militants that they were only sharing the peace and love of Jesus Christ, then asked a question. What had they done wrong to deserve such abuse as being publicly raped and then being beaten up? Moments before, the Christian witnesses were beheaded. The villagers shared that all of them were on their knees praying. Villagers said that some were praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Others said that some were praying the Lord's Prayer. And others said some of them had lifted up their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus. One of the women looked up, and according to the villager, with a smile upon her face, she uttered the last word, the last name, Jesus. And then they were beheaded, and then they were crucified. Why did all of these do what they did? Because they had a deep concern for those who are lost. And so now I want you to do something for me. Is that if you remember at the beginning of this message, I shared that on September 18, my brother phoned me up. In the course of our conversation, he shared these words, I have decided I'm going to be an atheist. I do not believe that there really is a God. With one ear, I was listening to my brother's voice coming through my telephone. But with my other ear, I was listening to the news reporters on CNN giving their commentaries on their thoughts regarding the presidential debate. I heard Carl as he announced his decision. And but, and can I share, I'm going to be very transparent with you. I need to let you know that I apathetically allowed his words to enter my ears but not touch my heart. You see, I was more interested in what was being said on TV than the news I had just heard from my brother. There were no emotions felt for what Carl had just shared. In fact, if I were to be totally and brutally transparent with you, I was more emotionally stirred by what I was hearing about the presidential candidates than about the news that my brother did not believe in the existence of God. And so bluntly put, my brother is lost spiritually. And yet the announcement of his decision did not faze me at all. But I want you to know that for the last few weeks, God and I, we've been in an intense wrestling match. In some ways, I almost picture myself wrestling as Jacob wrestled with God. And many of you can identify with this, of how God speaks to us through our thoughts. Can I share that's been happening to me? And the message that's being conveyed to me is this. Is that I have made my ministry for God almost totally academic. You see I I have the right words to say and yes I can teach classes on evangelism and discipleship and I can preach about the need for each one of us to be out there doing missions for God but I want you to know that the Spirit of God was speaking to me and saying hey Jim you're lacking concern really for the lost. No emotions, no tears, No passion. Not really caring. Did I have a passion for the lost? The honest answer, no. Years ago I had that passion. But can I share it's more like now that I had lost that passion. I've been reading books by Bill Hybel lately. Maybe partly because I want that passion that comes from the Holy Spirit to come back. And I find that sometimes the writings of other people can come along and help me to realize that I need to get back on track. In his book, Becoming a a Contagious Christian, the following words of his spoke deeply to my heart. In every true Christian, there is an awareness that we are on this planet for purposes greater than having a career. Paying the bills, loving our families, and fulfilling our role as outstanding citizens. Even going to church and worshiping God, important as these are, sometimes leave us feeling that something is missing. What is it that is absent in the lives of so many believers who are crying out for fulfillment? What on earth is God asking us to do? Well, God wants us to become become contagious. Or can I put it this way and add these words? God wants us to become Christians who are concerned about the lost that are around us and infectiously Offer it to all who are willing to consider it. I really do believe that God wants our head knowledge to become heart knowledge. Dr. Lawrence M. Gowd, the president emeritus of Carleton College, said these words, and I quote I do not believe the greatest threat to our future is from bombs or guided missiles. I don't think our civilization will end that way, but I think it will end when we no longer care. The worship team is here. I'm going to ask that you rise. In the front of the platform here, we have laid some empty blank cards, three by five cards. I've had to do this in the last few weeks in my prayer journal. I've come along and began listing again the names of individuals that I've been praying once again for that they come to know Jesus Christ, or they respond they will want to respond to the message of Christ. I've been praying that God will give me a deep concern for the lost. I believe that there are those of you inside this sanctuary that need to make that same recommitment to the Lord to have a concern for the lost. I have a feeling that there are those of you in this room that have loved ones and friends that do not know Jesus Christ as their own personal savior. Can I share? I invite you to come forward. To take one of these cards and with the pens that are up here, write the names of those individuals that you will commit to praying for and ask that the Holy Spirit of God will give you a deep concern for those lost, that you will pray for them and pray for them and pray for them. Because, dear ones, I still believe in the power of prayer. But those prayers have to be partnered with a concern that we do have for the lost. Do you understand what I'm asking you to do? I'm asking that we go beyond just looking at academics at this university. But I'm asking that we become true servants of the Lord who have a concern for the lost. Worship team, will you please lead us. Will you please respond that if you have lost ones that you would commit yourself to praying for. Write them on the cards. Then take the cards with you and place them in your Bible so that you can see those names. Or put them on your mirror in your dorm room. So that every day you will be reminded to pray for them. Will
1: you respond to the nudge of the Holy Spirit? I'm so thankful for the love of Jesus Christ that stepped into my life. I'm so thankful for the people who prayed for me day after day after day until I got it. Hundreds of you picked up cards. You know what one of the most common things in the world is? To do something like this and then forget that you did it. Let me challenge you, put your prayers where your commitment was. Actually pray, call out to God day after day after day and don't stop. My wife had the privilege last week of praying with her brother as he returned to Jesus. He graduated from here in 1978 and almost immediately began running from God. Actually he ran from God when he was here. And For all those years she prayed for him. And just last week he said yes to Jesus. Don't give up, don't give up, don't give up, keep praying. Carry the burden for your friends, your loved ones because God's passionate about them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of being here today. We thank you for Dr. Lowe. We thank you for the words that you challenged him to share with us. I think of the six names that I have written on my card. How desperate I am for them to say yes to you. You're desperate too. You're eager to. You've loved them so much that while they're still sinners, you died for them. Your passion is for them. They have to say yes. But I pray for us that as we would pray for them, we would also live in front of them in ways that the wisdom of following you becomes undeniable. May we live lives that others look at and say, I need some of that. We'd ask in Jesus' name, amen. Go make a difference in the lives of people with your love for Jesus.